I invite you all to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. At least that's where we're going to start this morning. We're actually going to jump around a bit, but we're going to start in Matthew, chapter 3. My plan was to fully jump into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount this morning. Last week we read the whole thing, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, from start to finish. And my plan was to start in on the Beatitudes this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit and so forth. That's why Marilyn put that cover on your bulletin and why it says Matthew 5, 3-12 on the back of your bulletin. But I guess the Lord had different plans for us. I'm not ready to take us deeply into Jesus' sermon like I wanted to. Hopefully next week we can do that, but as I say, that casserole needs a little more time in the oven. Instead, I want us to use this time to think together about the Holy Spirit. In fact, I have a, a snazzy Latin title for today's message. Last month it was Imago Dei, which meant what? Image of God. This month it is Spiritus Sanctus. Anybody know what that means? Any Latin scholars among us? What does that mean? It's just the Holy Spirit, right? That's right. Just the Latin words for Holy Spirit. Spiritus Sanctus was the theme of our Stay Sharp Theology Conference that a group of us attended this week at our district church in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania, just south of the airport there. I got to go with Andy Dobash and John Forsey and Joel Michaels and Abe and Jordan Scasel and Robin Mitchell to Waterdam Church to hear Greg Strand from the EFCA National Office teach us about the person and ministry of the Spiritus Sanctus. It was a really good conference, great teaching on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people have said that learning from Greg Strand is like drinking directly out of the fire hydrant. He just opens up, just cranks it open, and he pours out good teaching, and it's basically too much. You almost get drowned, but in good stuff. And Greg always brings more than he can share. Greg bought a two, brought a 292-page PowerPoint presentation. Don't worry, I don't have 292 slides for you this morning. But we probably didn't make it through half of Greg's slides during our two days together. It was all good. What I thought we might do today is to review together the major outline of the biblical teaching on the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Basically answering the question, who is the Holy Spirit? What do we mean when we say Spiritus Sanctus? What, who or what is this thing, this person we call the Holy Spirit? Now for some of us that's a very basic question. We're like, oh, I, wouldn't, I didn't even need to come this morning. I know this stuff. We've known the Spirit for most of our lives. But perhaps it would be good if we've been around this block to be reminded what we see on it. For others of us here, we may never have received much teaching on the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. I remember when we took our teens to the Challenge Conference two years ago, 2016, and the teaching there was about how our identity is shaped by the Trinity. Remember this, teens? God is Father, so we are family, right? God is Son, so we are saved servants, and God is Spirit, so we are sent on a mission. And the teens that we had that year at Challenge said one of the things they learned the most that year was just simply who the Holy Spirit is. 
They didn't know that much about him. It reminded me of those disciples of John the Baptist that the Apostle Paul met in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. When Paul asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit, they said, quote, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We don't want that. Christians believe in the Holy Spirit. Greg took us through church history and showed us what Christians have believed about the Spirit, good and bad, ever since the first century. We don't want to be ignorant about the Holy Spirit. So let's have a little mini stay sharp this morning on the Holy Spirit. And we'll start at the baptism of Jesus. Now we just looked at this a few weeks ago, so it should be very familiar. But this, this time I want us to focus specifically on the Holy Spirit in particular. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Would you pray with me? Lord, we've said it. We've sung it. We want all glory to be to Christ our King. Throughout the ages and forever, we long for him to get all the glory due his name. And we enjoy Him. We know this is true, that He is your Son, and you love Him, and you are well pleased with Him. Lord, we pray that Jesus would get the glory, even as we focus on your Holy Spirit, this gift from the Father, this mysterious and precious and powerful One who has come to live with us. We pray, Father, that Jesus would get the glory as we study the Spirit and His ministry among us today. Spirit, please be working in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the Son. Amen. So, who is the Spiritus Sanctus? Who is the Holy Spirit? I've got four points for you this morning, and the first one is very simple. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is is God. You remember this story, right? Jesus knew where John was baptizing by the Jordan River. He came to see John and asked to be baptized himself. John, realizing who Jesus is, God's son, the Messiah, doesn't want to do it. It's always dangerous to say no to Jesus, but he tries. He tries to deter him. Are you sure about this? Because I should be baptized by you. John knew that Jesus was greater than him. In fact, he had had just said that in Matthew chapter 3. He said that he wasn't worthy to untie Jesus' sandals, much less baptize him. I'm not worthy to be your servant, much less to baptize you. He said that Jesus would be doing some baptizing soon, and not with water, but with what? The Holy Spirit and fire. And John knew that Jesus didn't need a baptism of repentance. 
But Jesus insists, no, no, no. He says he should be baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness. Now, we know that that's one of Matthew's favorite words, right? Fulfill. He's going to say that again and again. Here, we, we said that, that it means that Jesus was identifying with us in his righteousness. Baptism is identifying. It's putting yourself into someone or something, identifying with that. When we get baptized... We are publicly putting ourselves into Christ by repentance and faith. And we're now looking, as as Matt said, we're looking for the next class of people who want to do that, to go public, to identify with Jesus in baptism. When Jesus was baptized, however, it was going the other way, right? He was identifying with us. It was right, he said, it was righteous for him to get baptized too. And so John took him down into the Jordan River and baptized Jesus. And then when Jesus came up out of the water, something unique happened. Something that's never happened before and and in many ways has never happened since. Verse 16, look at it again. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. I don't even know what that means. I, I can't even picture that. And he saw, Jesus saw, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Wow. Wow. There's so much there. In fact, we keep coming back to it, don't we? As you go through Matthew, you keep coming back to Matthew 3 and touching it as you're seeing What else it says about Jesus, we keep coming back to that. We will come back to Matthew 3 again and again as we study Matthew. For one thing, we see the Trinity, right? You've got the Son being baptized. Is the Father there? What's He doing? Declaring His love and His pleasure with the Son. And there's somebody else there too. Who is it? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, also called the Holy Spirit, descends from heaven and lands on Jesus in some way like a dove. All three are present in one place, in one event, at one time. Father, Son, and Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, He is God. Notice that verse 16 calls him the Spirit of God. Now, that could just mean that he belongs to God in some way. He's the Spirit that belongs to God. But other passages of Scripture clearly teach us that the Holy Spirit is fully God himself. For example, remember Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts? And how they they lied about how much money they'd made on the sale of their property in Acts chapter 5. And and the Apostle Peter, when he confronts them, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You've not lied to men, but to God. Lying to the Spirit is lying to God. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says that the Spirit comprehends the thoughts of God. Does anybody right now know what anybody else in this room is thinking? Not really. You can guess, but you don't know it exactly. All right, what am I thinking right now? Did anybody think the words Columbus, Ohio? 
That's what I was thinking, Columbus, Ohio. Nobody knew that, right? Only I knew that. Only my own spirit knew that I was thinking Columbus, Ohio, okay? Who knows the thoughts of God? Only the Spirit. Here's what he says. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. There are passages, many, many of them, equating the Spirit of God with God himself. When Jesus gives the Great Commission, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, that's another touchstone in Matthew. We'll keep coming back to the very last few verses of Matthew as we study through it. Jesus told his disciples to baptize in the what? In the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We might think of that as three names, and there are three names there. But Jesus saw them as co-eternal, co-equal, and fully divine. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, you might think that's just a settled fact. You're like, yeah, Pastor Matt, I, I know that one. It is a settled fact as far as church history is concerned. But there are still people who call themselves followers of Christ who do not believe that the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. I talked to two people this week who both say they believe in Jesus, but who are not sure that God is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. They're not sure that the Spirit is a distinct person or fully God. Friends, the Spirit of God who descended upon Jesus at His baptism was God the Spirit. Not just the Spirit of God, but God the Spirit. Here's the application of that. We should worship Him. We don't just worship, as Christians, we don't just worship the Father. We also worship God the Son. And our worship should also embrace God the Spirit because they are three in one. When was the last time that you specifically remembered in worship that the Holy Spirit is God? I'm thankful for worship songs like Holy, 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 right? They bring that out. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We sang songs about the Holy Spirit at the conference, like, Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew my heart and make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I cannot see. Give me passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, Fall fresh on me, melt me, mold me, fill me, use me, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. We should worship God the Spirit. Now, we're going to see in just a few moments that the Spirit is self-effacing. 
And the Spirit actually loves to almost hide in the background. So it's not that strange that He isn't at center stage in our worship all the time. But it is right and proper to worship Him because He is God. Number two, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. Notice that I have said He and Him and His instead of what? It or its. Now we don't get that from this passage, but when Jesus promised for the Spirit to come, say in John 14, that's how Jesus refers to Him. Listen to John 14. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. Do you hear them? Do you hear those pronouns? Pronouns are important in your Bible. Pay attention to them. Jesus knew that the Holy Spirit was not an it, but a person. Everything Greg Strand said this week supported that idea. He showed us that in some ways the Spirit has emotions. You can grieve Him. Grieve him. He has intellect. He knows things like he knows the thoughts of God. And he has a will. He decides things. The Spirit is a person. And that's important because that means we can have a relationship with him. We can relate to him. That's the application of that. Our relationship with God, will center on Jesus. We'll see that again and again. But it will be fellowship with the Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is not just an impersonal force. Some people, I think, conceive of the Spirit as being like the force in the Star Wars movies. Did you know that there are 390,000 people in England who consider Jedi to be their personal religion? I kid you not. I think most of them are joking. But that's what they mark on their census forms. When the form comes along and says, what religion are you? They write, Jedi. 390,000 people in Great Britain identify as, as Jedi worshipers. Whenever I lead an ordination council for pastors, this is always my first question when we get to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What is the difference between the Holy Spirit and the Force from Star Wars? How would you answer that question? Everybody ask that question at lunch today and see how many answers you can get. Okay, that's your assignment for this afternoon. Go home and ask the questions. What are the differences between the Holy Spirit and the Force from Star Wars? There are similarities. The Spirit is powerful. The Spirit is found everywhere. Okay, that's about where it ends, right? In Star Wars, the Force is impersonal and can be controlled. By the Jedis, right? Jedi mind tricks. God the Spirit is not controlled. He is free to do as He pleases. He is a person. He could be grieved, quenched, blasphemed. You can't blaspheme a force. He's a person. So we can relate to Him. We don't tell Him what to do, but He does tell us. And He's at work in our lives. 
He is so busy in our lives as Christians, we don't even realize it because he's working in the background, right? Greg gave us a long list of his ministries. There was slide after slide of, of, of notes of what the Spirit is up to in our lives. Our EFCA statement of faith summarizes it like this. We believe that the Holy Spirit and all that he does glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Come back to that in a moment. He convicts the world of its guilt. He regenerates sinners, gives us new birth. And in him, they are baptized into union with Christ and adopted as heirs in the family of God. He also indwells, illuminates, guides, equips, and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. Spiritual gifts, right? That's a lot, isn't it? That just scratches the surface. Number three, the Holy Spirit is mysterious. The Holy Spirit Spirit is mysterious. Why a dove? Why did he light on Jesus like a dove? I'll give you my answer. I don't know. I, I don't know. Now from this point on in history, doves become a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Right? Whenever you see a dove, you think Holy Spirit. If you see art that's a dove and it's kind of in a religious context, you go, they're talking about the Holy Spirit there. But that's from this point on. Why is he a dove there somehow? Like a dove, it says. In the second verse of your Bible, the Spirit of God is pictured as hovering. Hovering, bird-like perhaps, over the waters. Well, that's mysterious too. What, what does that mean? In fact, almost everything about the Holy Spirit is mysterious. For example, he's a spirit. <laughs> the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, which literally means breath. The Greek word is pneuma. Same thing. It's supposed to conjure up the idea of the wind blowing. Or the breath of God or the exhale of God, huffing and puffing and working his power in the world. Our word spirit doesn't really cut it, but there are no good words. Spirit, I think, is better than ghost. Because we think of Casper and Slimer and walking white bedsheets, right? When we think of ghosts. There's just no perfect ways to capture him. The spirit is too mysterious. Do you remember that story that I call Nick at Night from John chapter 3? When Jesus met Nicodemus one night. Jesus said, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He's mysterious. He likes it that way. Wind is not the only picture. Hardly. There's water. There's fire, flames of fire, there's powerful clothes. These and more are all pictures of the Holy Spirit that the New Testament gives us. He is too mysterious to capture in just a few words. And I think that means that we need to wonder at him. We should wonder at him. We should marvel at the Spirit. Thinking about the Spirit should lead us to marvel and to worship at his amazing work. He is not a humdrum subject worthy of scant attention. No, he's the mysterious personal God, the Spirit, worthy of our wonder and amazement. And we should not treat him as our pet. 
I think that the number one takeaway for many of us from the Stay Sharp conference this week was that we should not misuse the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't claim things for Him that we cannot back up with Scripture. We should be careful to attribute things to the Spirit that may or may not be. For example, we should not treat Him as simply a feeling that reduces Him to the level of our emotions. We learned about lots of movements of people over the years that have claimed the Spirit and the fruit of their actions were so far from the fruit of the Spirit it was scary. Not that we don't see the Spirit working in our lives, we do. But we need to be careful to not just baptize whatever we want or feel or think and call it the Spirit. The Spirit is mysterious. He's not controllable. He's like the wind. Anybody here able to control the wind? We can't capture him. He's elusive. He's incomprehensible. We can know him in part, but he's always beyond our grasp. So we wonder at his work in our lives. And number four and last, the Holy Spirit is Jesus-centered. One of the reasons I picked this passage to preach on the Holy Spirit is not because it's about the Holy Spirit, but because it shows the Holy Spirit in his dove-like descending, highlighting the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the Spirit operates amazingly and supernaturally and mysteriously and miraculously, he's often not the focus. He's always pointing people to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is Jesus-centered. Jesus said that's the way it should be. In fact, that's the way it should happen. In John 16, he said, The Spirit will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. The Spirit in his ministry is all about Jesus. Greg told us this week that J.I. Packer calls this the Spirit's floodlight ministry. In his book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit, J.I. Packer writes, I remember walking into a church one winter evening to preach on the words, He shall glorify me, seeing the building floodlit as I turned a corner, and realizing this was exactly the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You're not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you're meant to see is just the building in which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. His message is, look at Him and see His glory. Listen to Him and hear His word. Go to Him and have life. Get to know Him and taste His gift of joy and peace. That dove points to Jesus as the Father says, This is my Son. Some Christians have made the mistake of ignoring the Holy Spirit. Don't want to do that. Other Christians have made the mistake of focusing too much on the Holy Spirit and making their Christianity about Him. But the Holy Spirit wants us to be Christians not Numians, not Ruachians, not Holy Spiritists, but followers of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is Jesus-centered, and so should we be too. The Spirit of God will be eternally happy if we are eternally focused on Jesus Christ. 
It was right for Jesus to be baptized, to identify with you and me. And when, when Jesus went to the cross, he was identifying with us yet again, right? He was taking our unrighteousness. And in the greatest exchange ever, he was giving us his perfect righteousness. And to all who put their trust in him and what he did on the cross, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then continually shines his light on Jesus in our lives so that Jesus gets the glory forever.